0: This has been a strange day, a good day, but a strange day, as our Bethel Church golf outing has been taking place all afternoon and into the evening. I was there to be a part of it. I played the same hole at White Hawk, I don't know how many times, meeting everybody and saying hello, and then at five o'clock I got on my horse and I rushed over here and I took a quick shower, I threw my clothes on, and... And now here I am with you. So it's just a little bit of a strange night for me. I'm out of my routine, but if there's a reason to be out of your routine, the Bethel Church Golf outing would be one, don't you think? I think so. So I am not accountable for anything I say tonight, which is a scary thing because I'm talking about sexuality. Uh, But that is the subject tonight, and I need to tell you this uh, up front. If you are a parent here tonight and you have maybe small children and you'd prefer that they not hear this, um, I'm not going to be any more explicit than the text is, but just in case that's you and you'd rather them not hear this, you feel free to slip out right now. Uh, The problem, of course, with that is that if you slip out and you get in the car and you drive uh, down Broadway, as you drive down Broadway, there are going to be billboards with images that will be teaching sexuality to your children. And uh, tomorrow, when you maybe turn on the TV to watch NASCAR or golf or whatever it is that you perhaps watch on TV, uh, they will be sitting there next to you as you see the uh, ubiquitous uh, Viagra and Cialis commercials that they play during those events. And that will be teaching a perspective on sexuality uh, to your children. And most likely, as they are on the bus uh, to school or Uh, They are playing around in the neighborhood. Some rotten little kid next door is going to tell them about sex. And it's probably not going to be from the biblical perspective. Uh, I know this from my own life growing up. The, uh, The boy who told me about this... I uh, is actually now a pastor (laughs) in Iowa, interestingly enough, but he swears to this day that when he told me about uh, sex that I looked him in the eye and I screamed, my mom and dad would never do that! And I ran away. The point being that in all of our attempts to shield, it's very difficult in our culture And all of those things are teaching. They are giving a perspective on this particular subject and rarely, if ever, is it coming from a biblical or Christian worldview. Of all the expressions of brokenness in our culture, sexual sin has the most powerful and destructive potential of them all. Now, in saying that, we are not saying that Uh, that sex itself is destructive. Human sexuality is a gift from God, and uh, the Christian perspective celebrates sexuality as a part of God's good creation. I mean, he made them male and female, and then he looked at them and said, it's very good. So uh, Christianity is not prudish about sexuality, and and, and is, is, in fact, in chapter 7, we're going to have all kinds of teaching about sexuality and marriage and singleness. And Christianity celebrates this and ought to celebrate it as a good gift from God. But we're not in chapter 7 yet. We are here in chapter 6. 1 Corinthians, by the way. If you have a Bible, you'll want to turn there. 1 uh, Corinthians 6 is not about sex specifically. It is more about a biblical view of the body and God's intent for the body and how sexual immorality falls short of what God's intent is for the body and produces all of the destruction and pain that we see so prevalent around us. Now, he's already addressed in his letter one area of sexual immorality. In chapter 5, we already studied this, where uh, there was a man in the church who was having... Uh, relations with his stepmom now we get to chapter six, and it actually is here 's the situation. There are men in the church who are involved in something that in the Corinthian culture, was completely acceptable and normal and This is hard for us to believe, but maybe it 's not hard for us to believe, but this is actually the case that that prostitution was a normal part of life in corinth, had no stigma whatsoever to it was a part of worship there of Aphrodite on the temple mound, the goddess of sex, the official goddess of the city. They grew up with this. It was normal. In fact, one quote from a Greek writer of the day, I think, will summarize this. This is what he wrote. We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for daily concubinage, If I said that correctly, I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure I've never said that word before, so (laughs) perhaps somebody will correct me. But wives we have in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our domestic property. That's a first century quote. What was it like in the Greek culture? Absolutely normal to have mistresses and concubines and of course you need to have a wife so that things are sort of legitimate and she needs to be trustworthy because after all she is watching over things in the home so uh this is a this is quite a place corinth don't you think uh the greeks were very open to any and all expressions of sexuality including sex before marriage sex with the same gender sex outside of marriage and sex for pay. All very commonplace, all very acceptable, just a part of everyday life in Corinth. The Christians in Corinth, though, were these were all now people who used to be involved in this kind of lifestyle. Then they came to faith in Christ, but sadly, some of the people within the, these are men in the church, some of them are still involved in this kind of lifestyle, which they had been a part of prior to faith in Christ. So with that background now, let's get into our passage here today. Chapter 6, verse 15, and here we go. Here's what it says. In fact, why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word? Can we do that? Chapter 6, verse 15, and we're just going to read through the end of the chapter. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God's word for us tonight. Thank you. You may be seated. As we come now to try to understand what this is, what this is talking about, uh, we're building on what we saw in verses 12 through 14 from last week. And what we saw last week is that in spite of popular thinking, even in our culture, we, or I could say, it's we, but I'm going to speak to you, you are more than your plumbing. Plumbing. You are more than your passions. You, as an image-bearer of God, are more than your hormones. There is a much bigger and grander and greater purpose and meaning behind all of this. The body is a vital part of God's redemptive plan. And Jesus died to save our bodies too. And since that is the case, I'm summarizing now last week, since that is the case since our bodies are what are a part of what Christ died for, and our bodies are a part of God's future plan for us in redemption, these bodies are not just toys. They are not merely tools, things just to be used in any sort of way. They are sacred and holy. And this was a radical thought in Corinth, because the prevailing philosophy of the day was, A kind of Greek dualism. And it's probably been a long time since you took philosophy class. But just to summarize, basically what what the Greek dualism taught was that the soul or the immaterial is what really mattered. The physical didn't matter at all. And so the Corinthians interpreted that to mean that my body is just something for me to use in whatever way that I want to. Since it doesn't matter. Since Pleasures and all these things don't matter. Then I might as well just go for it, just do it. <laughs> it was a popular slogan of the day, and 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 do it they did all the time. So, in case you're confused about this uh, kind of worldview, where where we're we're souls trapped in bodies, and that our bodies don't matter. This is this is. This is true today. Think about, think about the common situation. If we were to go to a... I mean, right now, there are, there's a singles bar in northwest Indiana. What it is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't go there to... Anyway, but uh, in Chicago, we could go to Chicago and, 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 and walk into that singles bar and look around. And what you're going to find are many people that are using their bodies as tools. Using their body as a tool to get what their inward person really wants. And that is love. Meaning. Somebody to cherish me. And so the woman flaunts her stuff and the man flaunts his stuff and they merge the plumbing and they think to themselves, now for this few moments somebody really cares for me. This longing in my heart has been met. And then the next morning, he's gone, she's gone, leaving both of them to wonder, is this all that there is in life? I feel cheap. I feel used. This goes on every single day. And there's a reason that we feel cheap on the other side of these experiences and why we keep looking for something more and something different. And it's the Christian answer. And what, I tell you, one of the things that I just, it just boggles my mind how somehow in our culture, There is a perspective that the Christian sort of approach to sexuality and love is so like prudish and doesn't work. And that the real answer is what's going on at the singles bar or sex in the city or this portrayal of of meaning being in your plumbing. And yet the world runs after these things and they can't find it. And all the while here's the Christian answer saying you're more than that. The world thinks that we've put it below and say it's not that important, it's bad. But in actuality, Christianity puts it way higher than the world does. It's much greater and grander and sacred than any singles bar could ever know or understand. Do you see what I'm saying? Let me say that again. Because it's Saturday night and I don't have another service that i got to sort of worry about being done with. And I want to say this. From the world's perspective, they think that their view of sexuality, like it's, 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 it's here, and those, those Christians, they're sort of like down here with it. When in reality, what we are is up here with it, saying that it is sacred, it is special, it is glorious. And to treat your body as a tool demeans the glorious gift that God has given. And isn't that a great irony? All right, what was I talking about? Let's get back to it here. I just had that thought. It just seems to me, what a sad thing. And by the way, you might be here tonight, and, and uh, perhaps that's news to you. Like, uh, you've, you know, you're sort of checking out Christianity, and, and you've had that perspective. And here now you're here tonight, and lo and behold, what a great night to come. The church is talking about sexuality. And you thought, well, I didn't even know, A, they a, cared about it, B, believed in it, and C, had an answer that might mean something in your life. Keep listening. Keep listening tonight. So, what is the Christian perspective of the body, and then how does that relate to, uh, to sexuality? Now, realize that we're talking about the Christian body tonight. We're talking about the Christian body tonight. The, the Christian body in the perspective of God's redemptive plan. What is true, if you're a Christian tonight, what is true of your body? Here's the first thing. He says it in verse 15. That our physical bodies are spiritually united with the risen Christ. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? In fact, I thought about organizing my message tonight about under the with the do you not knows. He repeats it three times in this passage. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you know what that means? It's a lot like a parent Who might say to their child, don't you know better? And the right answer to a question when your mom says that to you is, yes, but I am stupid, right? (laughs) I know better, but I'm not acting like it. Do you not know, Paul says, these realities? And he's probably referring to teaching that he gave to them while he was pastoring this church. Don't you remember what I told you? Do you not know? But what is it that we are to know? That your bodies are members of Christ. Members. Now, this is a word that we don't use very often. So, let's just make sure we understand what it means. Members basically is, means uh, body parts. Okay, body parts. My my arm is a part of my body. My leg is a part of my body. My, my arm and leg are members of my body. They are They are in unity with the rest of my body. That's what members is talking about. Do you not know that your bodies are members of or with Christ? Now, what is he saying there? Obviously, he's talking about unity, okay? Unity. That our bodies are in a unity with Christ. This obviously is not a physical unity because Christ is in heaven in a glorified body. Here we are on earth. We are not physically united with him, but we are spiritually united with the risen Christ. Do you not know that your bodies, it's not just our souls, but our bodies, this physical part of who we are, is in a spiritual unity with the risen Christ. Now, how is this real. It's non-physical, but it's real. There is a unity with us. I got thinking about that, and the closest thing that I can come up with to sort of illustrate this is if you think about what a loving family ought to be. Clearly, there are examples of this ought not to be, but if you think of what a loving family ought to be, there is a unity amongst the family. Now, it's non-physical, right? But When one member of the family is hurting, the rest of the family is hurting with them. When one member of the family is celebrating, the rest of the family is celebrating with them. There is a kind of, there is a non-physical unity that members of a family have. And you can't see it, but if you've ever experienced it, you can't deny it. That exponentially is the kind of unity that we have with the risen Christ. Think of all the times in the New Testament where it says that we are in Christ or in him. That's repeated over and over and over again. Christ is not merely in heaven just sort of looking, watching over us and saying, Oh, look look, oh, look, what they're doing. He is in a unity, a spiritual unity with us. That includes our bodies. First Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ. And individually members of it. Ephesians 4. This is a well-known passage. And I think this illustrates it well. Rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Into Christ. From whom. Okay, so Christ is the head. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. With which it is equipped. When each part is working properly. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church. The church. The universal church is in a vital unity with the risen Christ. That unity is spiritual, but it includes the physical bodies that we are in. Our bodies are a part of the unity that we have in Christ. How many ways can I say it? Are you with me? Sometimes as I blather on and on, I think, you know, I'm just sort of repeating myself, but the look in their eye tells me I need to keep repeating myself. So I'm not exactly sure anybody is getting it. Are you with me? You get what I'm saying? Okay, All right, now, we tend to talk about being in Christ as a theoretical concept, or a spiritual concept. Paul's argument here is that it is a physical, it is spiritual, but it, is, it has physical implications to it. Namely, that everything I do, and everywhere I go, and everything I see or experience... My spiritual unity with Christ brings him into the experience. He is there in it with me. For good or bad, he is in it with me. So, as we talk about this, number one, got to get it, my body is in a unity with the risen Christ. Here's the second thing that he's going to say. It's not just the second person of the Trinity. It's not just the Son. It is also the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Second thing we need to realize, friends, is that our bodies are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is... Startling! This is a this is a startling New Testament teaching. If you were if you were a group of of Old Covenant Jews, and I made a statement like that, you'd all be like, Ugh. "You would." What? Wait, 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 wait. What are you saying? And the reason that this would be shocking is that. So much of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the relationship that Israel had with God was based upon the presence of God with his people. And where did God reside in Israel? The place where his presence was located... Now God is everywhere, but the place where His Shekinah glory, the the epicenter of His presence, was the temple, and you can think about and the tabernacle as well. In their wilderness wanderings, there was the tabernacle, and that was built. Moses got clear command from God about how that was supposed to be was supposed to be built and constructed. Exodus twenty five verse nine. If you're a construction person, if you've The most careful blueprints ever followed in the history of construction was when God said, build the tabernacle this way. And they did it exactly the way that he told them. And then, of course, later Solomon, who built his temple, the center of all of that, at the very core of it, was the holy place and then the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant resided. That was the center. That was the physical manifestation of the presence of God with Israel. So the tabernacle and the temple are huge. You maybe have heard this when we studied Hebrews. We talked about it that the Holy of Holies once a year. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And before he went in you know what they would do? They would tie a rope around his leg. Just in case he did something wrong while he was in there and God struck him dead. That way they could pull him out dead on the ground without going in and risking their own life. So imagine when you're the high priest and and they're like, okay, it's about time for you to go in. And then you see him tying you up and you're like, oh boy, I really don't want to blow this. Right? So this was a very holy thing. The holy of holies was holy. It was sacred because God was there. The dwelling place of God is always sacred because God is holy. You can think of even to this day that how high tensions ride in Jerusalem as the Jews worship at the Western Wall and the Muslims actually control the temple mound and all of the tension and how important that little acre of land it's the most valuable acre of earth on the planet millions if not billions would die for that little spot of earth why because there are so many that believe that is the place that god's presence was where god is is sacred and holy And what's so startling then about the New Testament teaching on this is that in the New Covenant, after the cross, after the resurrection, that no longer is God's presence located in a building. Remember, when Jesus died, the veil was split in two. It was cut from top to bottom. There is no longer this sort of locality, this physical locality. Jesus said that in John 4 to the woman at the well. The day is coming when those who worship will not worship on this mountain or that mountain, but will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus was talking about that. The temple was pointing towards this day when God's dwelling would not be in a physical temple, but would be in his people. That our bodies now, gloriously and mysteriously for sure, our bodies are the location where the spirit of god dwells when a person receives christ as their savior the holy spirit this is what the bible says the holy spirit third person of the trinity comes and in a unique relational way resides within the heart at the heart the body of the believer So that now the body of the Christian becomes the temple. And where God is, is holy. Which means then that the body of the Christian is also holy and sacred. In fact, you could read this uh, passage to mean this. Do you not know that your body is the new covenant holy of holies? As God's spirit actually resides within you. Think of that, Christian. Now that's an awesome thought. Just take think, think of that for a moment. Tonight as you sit here, that body that you have, God's there. His Spirit is here. Residing within us. Doing His work, which the Bible calls sanctification. Making us into, making us holy in our practice. Making us into the image of Christ. He's transforming us. God's Spirit is in you. God in you. Now, don't get all puffed up about it. That's that's right. You know, you look in the mirror, you're like, (sighs) you are not God, but God is in you. Does that change the perspective on the body? You bet it does. How would the Jews have reacted if somebody got into the Holy of Holies with spray paint and just kind of sprayed around and all of that? Can you imagine the riot? They would, what? It's holy. Your body is that when rightly understood. So if you are a Christian, God's Spirit is in you. Think of the implication of this. All the time, everywhere you go, Everything you see, everything you think, the Spirit of God is brought into that experience because He is dwelling within us, because our bodies are temples. So as we build this theology of the body, we have this glorious reality that we are spiritually united with the risen Christ in a way that includes the physical body and this body in the new covenant is what the temple was in the old covenant. The dwelling place of God. And therefore it is sacred. So Paul lays that foundation. And now what he does. Is he applies it to the sin of sexual immorality. Or what I'm saying right here now. What not to do in unity with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Do Not unite them with a prostitute. That's what he says. Look at verse 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Okay, so we have the theology of the body, which we just got done talking about. Now we need a theology of sex. We need to understand what is actually going on in sexual relations. What is sex actually? Here's what it is. It is a unity. It is a unity. Now I don't know anybody that would argue that it was anything less than that on the physical level. It is for sure a physical Unity. It is a physical merging. But here now is where the entire cultural perspective that my, it's, that it's just casual sex. It's just, you know, it's just one of these little biological functions. You sort of need to do it every once in a while. That kind of thing. This is where they miss it. Miss it. Listen. They will say it's just sex. Meaning that it is merely biological. But from the beginning... Sex has been designed by God to involve much more than just our plumbing. It involves the entire person. Our sexuality is not merely the biology, it is at the essence of who we are as persons, it is spiritual. Think of it, when God made mankind, he made us male and female, Genesis 127. So from the beginning, defining who we are as people is our sexuality. He didn't say, you know, uh, 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 tall and short, he created them. Uh, You know, uh, big and small, he created them. Smart and dumb, he created them. Uh, You know, Dutch and losers, he created them. (laughs) from the beginning it has been male and female he created them our sexuality is is not sort of this negotiable thing it is the core of who we are as human beings and so sex when it involves the male and the female it is a unity of more than body, it is a unity that extends to the soul of who we are. It is spiritual. Now, we've talked about this before, and there's messages in the bookstore that you can check out on this. But just to quickly summarize, again, let's remind ourselves why God made sex in the first place and why He, male and female, he created them in the first place The primary reason that God did this is to picture in creation the greatest reality that there is in the world, and that is the Trinity. In the Trinity, we have Father, Son, and Spirit delighting in one another, satisfied in one another, plurality in unity, three in one, three diverse, different in one. And so here you have God now creating the world as an expression of his character, the heavens decor, the glory of God, and everything else does as well. And so God steps back and he thinks to himself, how am I going to picture in creation us? How to do the plurality and unity thing? What can we do possibly that would appropriately celebrate like we celebrate this three-in-one thing? And God made them male and female. And in sexuality and in sexual relations, the two become one. And I rather think the reason that he made it pleasurable was so that in that moment, there would be celebration of that truth, which is something that the animals don't have, but humans do, so that it would be not just a hum-drum truth, a humdrum reality, oh yeah, but it would be happy. Now that I've never taught here before, so that's a new thought. But it came to me as I was getting changed from and going over the sermon from the golf thing. So I'm going to deduce from that that the more golf I play before preaching, <laughs> the more inspired and insightful the messages will become i am off my point so paul proves his point now in this passage by quoting from genesis 224 so we're going right back to the very beginning when god made them male and female here's here's what here's the whole verse i think we may have it up here this is the whole verse he doesn't quote all of this but here's the whole thing Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Paul quotes that here uh, in this passage. It's in verse, verse 16. The two shall become one flesh. Okay, so that the oneness of sex goes far beyond the uniting of body parts. It is a spiritual unity to the extent that here from the beginning God intended that they would man and wife, okay, man and wife, do you hear me? Man and wife, husband and wife, not generic man, man down the street, husband and and wife that they would become a unity a oneness a one flesh and so this spiritual unity in the context of covenantal marital commitment is something christianity celebrates it's not dirty it's not bad it's wonderful glorious one of the great gifts that god has given in creation So sex is a unity. Got that? Sex is a unity. Is it only marital sex that is a unity? No, 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 no. And that's what Paul is getting at now. All sexual experience is a unity. God designed it that way. It unites two people. And here now is the core of his argument against immorality. Since that is the case, and since these Christian men in the church at Corinth are spiritually united to the risen Christ and the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, what they are actually doing when they are involving themselves with a prostitute is they are bringing Jesus and the Holy Spirit into the experience and actually uniting them with the prostitute. And his response to this is some of the strongest, it's like the strongest negative in the Greek. May it never be, or God forbid... That that would ever be the case. To take the holy precious son of God. And to unite him spiritually with a prostitute. What? So do you see what we're saying? Are you all with me? Okay. Now the best illustration of this that I can think of is disturbing. Okay. I'm just telling you up front. It's disturbing. And. It's just disturbing enough that I think it actually might sink in. Okay? I would like to introduce you to um, the two most famous conjoined twins in history. We have their pictures here. All right? Ones that when they were younger, ones when they were older. This is Chang and Eng Bunker. They are from what we now call today Taiwan. It used to be called Siam. And so, therefore, Siamese twins became kind of the word that we use for conjoined twins like this. But this is, uh, this is Chang and Ang uh, Bunker, a name they took when they came to the United States. Their story is they were discovered by somebody. They spent time traveling the circus, just being sort of a part of people, just wanted to see what these guys looked like. Well, as they were touring around in the United States, they were somewhere, I think it was Pennsylvania, and they met these two sisters, and they decided that they wanted to get married to these two sisters. And it was kind of this big brouhaha, but uh, in the end, they ended up getting married to the two sisters. Now I'm not sure which one's Chang and which one's Ang up there, but uh, Chang, let me see, if I get this right. Chang and his wife had ten children. Ang and his wife had 11 children. Now tonight I'm not sure if I need to say anything else. As you contemplate how that happened and what all would be involved in Siamese twins having 21 children between them. But you get it, don't you? Now, if that's sort of a disturbing thought, it's not nearly as disturbing as the thought of bringing our precious Savior, Christ, who loved us, died for us, holy, risen. The thought of Bringing him into a sexual encounter with somebody not my spouse ought to be a very disturbing thought. It ought to gross us out, truly. May it never be thought of being united with the spirit within us and bringing the spirit of god through that unity into unities through sexual ex- encounter with somebody that is not god's blueprint creates a disturbing reality and if it is not disturbing to you my dear friend i don't know that you love christ Because to love Christ is to love him as Savior and Lord. And not to want to bring him into anything that would be sacrilege to who he is. I'm in unity with the risen Christ. I'm in unity with the Holy Spirit. And in sexual experience, I am in unity with whoever I am with. And in Christian marriage that is celebrated and holy, But in anything other than that, it is bringing God by unities into the sinful experience. This includes all kinds of sexual expressions. Sex between a man and a man. Sex between a man and a woman, not his wife. Sex between a man and an animal. Sex... Between a man and himself and the female version of those things. All of them are distorting God's blueprint for what this unity is to be like. And you got to understand that. Because otherwise you read a commandment like, uh, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. And it just sort of sits there in isolation like, oh, I can't do this or it's bad. But you don't know why. And you don't know the fuller story. And you don't know why God cares. I mean, why why should God care about my sexuality? Why? Because he made it to picture something. And that picture is only appropriately pictured when there are two different people that are becoming one in unity. And all the other unities blaspheme what the Trinity actually is, and that's why he cares. And that's, by the way, why we should care. This is also why it is such an explosive issue in our day. I mean, you could talk about, you know, fusion scientifically <laughs> It's a bad one to pick. <laughs> you could talk about metamorphosis. You can talk about rain. You could talk about grass growing, but when you talk about sex, everyone's, right? Why do they put scantily clad women in commercials for motor oil? <laughs> Did you ever stop to think, like, what, what is the connection between those two things? That woman has never changed her oil in her life. She probably doesn't even know there's oil in the engine. But you put a bikini on her and you put the oil thing next to her, and somehow something happens. Why? Why is sexuality in our culture such an explosive issue? And along with that, of course, marriage and all the other things that relate to. Why? Here is why. Sex is volatile because sex is sacred. And sex is sacred. Because it pictures a holy God. And that is why mankind, made in the image of God, even fallen mankind, when you talk about sex, there is something that goes on that nothing else does. It's because it's sacred and holy. And we must protect that sacredness in the example of our own lives. This is what Paul is getting at, is that, That these unities are important and these pictures are important. And of course, this is very difficult to do. Because the culture that we live in, much like the Corinthian culture, is doing everything that it, it can to war against that. And so it's very hard for a man to live in the culture today and in all of the temptations and all the visual things that he sees to have in his mind, no, I want my unity to reflect the Trinity. And to see the naked, mostly naked woman and to think, you know what? That doesn't fit the picture because she's not my wife. It's very hard, isn't it, men? Nobody wants to amen on that point, but I'll just amen for you, all right? It's very hard to do that. It's very hard to... Not inflame sexual desire because it is such a powerful passion that we just come like pre-wired for. You know, you, 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 pre-wired. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> oh, I'm blowing it now, boy. I. Uh... But it's easily inflamed, it's volatile, and it's hard to suppress it once it's... Been inflamed, very difficult. But here's the thing: listen, everyone, it is worth it. That's why we can look at young people and singles, or widows or widowers, those that are not married, and to say to them, "It is worth waiting for." Okay, you say that to somebody in isolation, and you give them no explanation as to why it's worth waiting for, and. And it doesn't make any sense. And so they say, well, why is it worth waiting for? Well, because you'll find out someday. That's not good enough. Why? Because God's glory as seen in the picture of sexuality is worth it. Because it is sacred. It is sacred. Married folks preserving the sexual fidelity of your relationship is worth it it's not just the singles that need to hear about that it is the married people that need to hear that that is both on the defense worth preserving and on the offense worth celebrating and we'll get into that in chapter 7 celebrate it (laughs) yeah But unity with Jesus and unity with the Holy Spirit makes purity, both in and outside of marriage, worth it. Worth it. And every effort that we make to preserve it. Now, how should we do this? How should we do this? Paul offers some suggestions. And aren't we glad? Because right now you're going, okay, I need to do it. I don't know how. Here's some suggestions as to how To do it, you'll love the first one. Verse 18. Flee. Say that word with me together. One, two, three. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, this is not hard for anybody to understand. The youngest child here can get this. As Mark Twain says, there are many ways to deal with temptation, but the best one is to be a coward. Flee means flee. It might also be translated, run. Get away from it. And it's in a Greek form where it means keep running from it. Okay? Continually be defensively avoiding situations where I or you might fall in this area. Now, some of you might be saying to yourself right now, and I just hear some of you right now going, oh, this is a good message for those young people. Go get them, Pastor Steve. Isn't it great we got a young pastor. He can talk to the young people and tell them how important it is that they wait. It's wonderful. Okay, you're the one that needs to hear the message right now. You are the one. Now, right now you're going, oh, I ain't the one. I know he's saying I'm the one, but I ain't the one. No, no, you are the one. Not me, I'm old i 'm old. Listen, when I was in seminary, I worked at, as a night watchman at this like nursing home skilled care retirement center. you don 't even want to hear what i 'm about to tell you. There were over a hundred women at this place, and five men. Okay, now, don't laugh too hard, because what I'm about to say is sin, and I'll feel bad if you laugh. You've had your laugh, okay? Don't laugh at what I'm about to say, because I don't want us laughing at this, okay? Because it's sin. But this is the honest truth. No laughing, please. Those men came out of a different room almost every morning. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Who here is beyond this somehow? I hope that all of us say, you know what? I need to hear it. I need this. Why? Because we're sinners. We're sinners. And we are sinners till the day we die. So how should we handle sexual temptation? Run! The picture there is I think of possibly of Joseph, who when Potiphar's wife came to seduce him and proposition him, he didn't negotiate with her. He didn't say, well, you know, let's sort of think about this. He ran from her. He didn't linger. He got out of there. And there's all kinds of practical implications to this. I don't have time to get into it now. But beware, my friends, specifically, listen, beware when relationships are trending too personally. With members of the opposite sex. Beware. Your spouse is your spouse. Don't get too friendly with somebody else who's like that. I'll tell you something else that I don't like to hear. I don't like to hear when couples are dating or are, are not dating, when couples are when married couples sort of get into this little jokey ha ha about their sexual relationships which even amongst Christian couples, sometimes they sort of get that way where you feel so comfortable or you can get sort of that everything going on. Beware of that. It has a way of engaging the imagination. In fact, I would say that to you. Beware when you cannot control your thoughts about somebody. Beware when you cannot keep the imagination from running. Beware and Run! Run! It's great advice. Now, as a side comment, i just got to say this. I've always wondered what Paul meant when he says that all those sins are sins outside the body, but sexual sin is a sin against the body. I've always wondered what he meant by that. I'm glad I've studied this week. Here's what I think it means. All sin is sin. But sexual sin is a unique kind of sin. It's not the worst kind of sin. That's not what he's saying. There are worse sins than sexual sins. But... It is a unique sin because it sins against God's purpose for the body in the scope of redemption. He is making us holy. He is about to glorify the body. Sexual sin sins against God's plan for this body as from the perspective of redemption. That's what I think that it means. End of comment. Okay. So run, flee. Secondly. Live as a steward of the body. God's redeeming it. Look at verse 19. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. We talked about this last week. This really is an issue of ownership. Whose body is it? This body that I have is my body. I can do what I want with it. No, you can't. No, you can't, Christian. Your body is God's body. You are temporarily a steward of it. Have you ever borrowed somebody's car? Have you ever noticed that little feeling you have inside when you borrow a car, where you're somebody else's car? I actually borrowed a car this week. I have a Honda. I borrowed a Honda, so I'm kind of in the same car family, you know. Things looked similar on the dash and the way the H and the thing and all that. So there's a certain familiarity that I have kind of felt right. But it wasn't my car. And so I backed out slower than I do with my own car. And I pulled out of the parking lot more carefully than I do with my own car. And you sort of look more... You you leave a little more room when you're getting out in traffic when it's not your car. Why? Because it's not your car. It's somebody else's car. Which means that I'm more careful with it. How much more when I look at my body and recognize that the rightful owner of this body is Jesus Christ. He bought it with his own blood. So therefore... This body is not my body. I am a steward of it. And I would say the implications of this are, are there's lots of them. Be a good steward of it sexually. Be a good steward of it nutritionally. Be a good steward of it medicinally. Be a good steward of it morally. Be a good steward of it interpersonally. And be a good steward of it spiritually. Why? Because it's Christ he bought it. You with me? And then finally, the daily goal. Here's the final thought, chapter 6. What are we to do? Glorify God in your body. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Westminster Catechism. What is the big goal? What is the big thing that we're doing? We are living our lives to glorify God. And lo and behold, we find out in the New Testament uh, Christian ethic that this includes my body. It's not just my attitudes. It's not just my, you know, sort of my prayer life, my time in the Word. It is my body and what I do with my body and what I let my body see and what I let my body feel and touch and what I, where I take my body. That in all of these things, I am unified with the risen Christ. I am possessing the Holy Spirit. Therefore, this body is to be used in a way that brings Him Glory and pleasure, which is the exciting thing. Listen, the, you know, don't take this as a negative. The positive is that we can do this with our bodies. My body can glorify God. So use it that way. Think about this week. Did you do that with your body? Did you have a Christian body this week? Did it act saved? The things that you saw, the things that you allowed yourself to see, the things that you thought about, the things that you touched and the things that places you went and all of this was was your body do you have a saved body this week did you glorify god with your body or as you think back in this week and things that you lingered on visually things that you did physically to think now that maybe the conjoined christ who is with me was there the whole time is a disturbing thought So maybe this coming week, that might just help you to glorify God with your body. That's what we're to do. All right, final thought. Final thought. We come right back to what we saw earlier in this chapter. Such were some of you. No doubt tonight as we think about this, And I say this with great compassion in my heart. There are experiences that we are thinking about. Perhaps sexual experiences that we are thinking about. And we wonder, well, what do I do with that? I can't change the past. What do I do with that? I'm glad tonight that I can say to you this, that As wrong as sexual sin is, it is also sin that Jesus died for. There is no sin that we can commit that cannot be forgiven if we will repent of our sins. Okay, Repent to change, have a change of mind over the event. And to confess that sin to God, He promises that He will forgive our sins. The passage earlier in this chapter says, such were some of you. Now, right before that, it says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God if you are here tonight, and this is your lifestyle. I don't want you to take comfort in what I'm saying right now. You can take comfort in this after you have repented of the sin and you have confessed it. While this is still something that you are choosing to do in rebellion against God, take no comfort from it, but know that there is grace to be found with God. That when we confess and forgive, or for confess and repent that God will forgive us. He can and he will. Think of the broken woman in John 8 who was thrown at his feet by the Pharisees saying she was found committing adultery. And Jesus said to them that he was without sin cast the first stone. They all walked away. There was the woman at his feet. He peered into her heart and he said to her, go and sin no more. That's the Christian answer. There is grace, there is forgiveness, there is restoration available with Christ. So sexual sin is a great sin, but we have a greater Savior. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Amen. We have a greater Savior. So let's glorify God with the bodies that he has given us and that he died to redeem. And with that, let's stand for prayer.